sure that God is at work for us and he's going to perform for us everything that he says that he will do. Even if one moment that I think that somehow God is going to fail in his work, then I would be a very miserable Christian. Many people have looked at this verse, verse number 6 in chapter 1, and they've called it the most important verse that we have in the book of Philippians. And I think that's true. And I also think it's one of the most important verses that we have in the entire Bible. I mean, if we wonder how it is that Paul could, could write such things with peace and contentment and happiness, there he is, chained to a Roman soldier, not even knowing if he's going to live or die, and yet he's able to write a book like Philippians. Just a wonderful thing because he was so sure that God would complete his work. We may think that God began his work with the call of salvation. And of course, that is the place that we realize it. But in fact, God started much earlier than that. He started before the foundation of the world when he chose his people. And then in time, he called them out. And now he promises to bring every one of those children to the full fruition of their salvation. And that's for us to come face to face with God Almighty in heaven. That's what God's going to do. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this tonight. Uh, several years ago, if, if you were, I'm not sure how many of you were with us. Many of you were. But seven years ago, or about seven years ago, I preached seven messages on uh, Seven years ago, that's not right, five years ago. Five years ago, I preached seven messages, I'll get it straight here, on this one subject. And uh, we're going to end it, though, tonight with three messages, but we can't do justice in three messages, seven messages, 700 messages about what God has done for us. So let's look at this verse one more time. You'll stand with me, please, and, and we'll read this. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this verse of Scripture that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for your work that's ongoing in our lives. Lord, we, we couldn't do anything without you, and so we praise your holy name for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me just read it again. I know you're familiar. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. The doctrine, of course, as I said earlier, is the doctrine of perseverance. And no matter what others may say, this is a Bible doctrine. And I believe that uh, those of you that are here tonight through our discussion of this subject, you very clearly understand, as I do, that it's impossible for us to continue in our faith. It's impossible for us to go on unless the Holy Spirit, unless God himself is working in our lives, enabling us to do his work. We can't survive any other way. In no way. Uh, any phase of salvation is it dependent upon us. God, God requires that we live a holy, consecrated life to him. He demands that we continue on in our faith, but he's the one who enables us to do it. In our Ephesian study, uh, perhaps you may remember that I quoted from an old English Puritan by the name of Richard Sibbs, and he said, God knoweth we have nothing of ourselves, therefore in the covenant of grace he requireth no more than he giveth, and giveth what he requireth, and accepteth what he giveth. I'm sorry that some people don't 
understand the doctrine of perseverance or perhaps even the meaning of the term, but that doesn't mean the doctrine isn't true. It's here in the Bible, and God is working every day with his people to complete the work that he started, and he's not going to fail to complete that until we're, we're safely at home with him. So let's review just really briefly the first two messages that we, where we uh, talked about perseverance in this verse. The first was the beginning of the work. That's how we started. And we mentioned that God is the author of salvation. God is the one who starts salvation, but he has a means in which he brings it to us. The first thing that he does, he awakens us to our lost condition and he shows us that we, that we truly are sinners. The second thing he does is he creates the desire in us to have a change in our lives. We know something is wrong and we desire to make that change. Then the third thing that God does is he reveals Christ to us so we understand that Jesus Christ himself is the one who affects the change in our lives. God's doing that. As I mentioned when we studied it before, I'm not talking about long periods of time that this takes place. When the gospel comes to you and the Holy Spirit works effectually in your life, all of these things come together. God awakening, God creating desire, God revealing Christ, and that's when you come to him in salvation. The next thing that we talked about was the background of the work. On the surface, salvation seems to be a very simple thing. And on the surface is really where most Christians stay, and they never really get down to the bottom of what's happening when God uh, does a work of salvation in us. For most people, they just look at it this way. I am a sinner. Christ died to save sinners. I believe in Christ, and therefore I am saved. And they're content to stay right there. That's enough for them. Well, thank the Lord for this. It is true. God does not require us to be seminary students to get saved. You don't have to know a whole lot of theology to get saved. Uh, God doesn't say, you've got to run an obstacle course and I'm going to put you through boot camp. And then when you've got through all of that, then you can become a Christian. Salvation is amazingly simple in its requirements and in its realizations. But don't ever think that salvation is simply simple. There's a lot that takes place, a lot going on when God calls a person out, when he, when he carries through with the process of keeping you saved. Things have to happen. The attributes of God are at work in what he does. The atonement of Christ had to take place. There was a legal process that had to happen. That's what we call justification. There's the ongoing intercession of Christ right now to the Heavenly Father for you because you are a Christian. There's the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell you, to live in you, to enable you uh, to, to live and to work for Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that are happening in salvation. And so don't ever think it's just a very simple thing. Paul says, I have confidence in this work because I know that at every juncture, God is the one who's working. God's the one who perform it, performs it. And so if the work ever fails, then God himself fails. So we have the beginning of the work and we have the background of the work. Now tonight, thirdly, we're going to look at the behavior of the work. The first two messages are the doctrinal side. That's where we get down where the doctrine comes from and, and the, uh, uh, what, what that's all about is from God's side of it. Now we're going to look at the practical side of it. And this is the way that Paul uh, introduces many subjects when he, when he starts writing to churches. He first deals with the doctrinal side of things, then he opens up the practical application of that doctrine. Now, that's exactly what we want to do tonight. We have the doctrinal side, and if it doesn't show up in your practice, then you didn't get the doctrine right. 
I believe that Paul had confidence in this work that God started because he could see the work progressing. He could see evidence that something had happened in the Philippians' life. And so now he knows that God's work is going to be ongoing in them. There's proof that it's there. So how did he know that? How does he know that God started a work in them? We may remember two weeks ago on Sunday night in our study of 2 John, I mentioned that John says that the evidence of our love for one another is the fact that we continue in the truth. Those that are truly saved are going to remain in the truth of God's word. And whenever a person departs from that, then there's evidence that a good work really didn't start in them. So John tells us in the, in the book of 1 John, he says, well, uh, there are people that, that appeared to believe, but then they went out from us. And the fact that they didn't continue with us, that's the proof that they really never had faith in, in the first place. And so that's, that when someone doesn't continue, that shows us that genuine faith is not right there. And a genuine work hasn't begun. People continue in the faith when they've trusted Christ. Now, we're going to step back once again here, and we're going to look at how this work started and how it continues. Very familiar passage. We all know this in Romans, 20, uh, Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And what we have there in those two verses is the progression of God's work. We saw there, it starts out with election before the foundation of the world, and it continues all the way to the glorification. But I want you to notice here particularly what it says in verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the behavior of the work of perseverance. So we want to say here first then that that perseverance shows up in conformity to Christ. We can see the work going on because the believer becomes conformed to Christ. In Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, a couple of Again, uh, another passage, a couple of verses that are familiar to you. You might want to turn there for just a minute because um, we're going to spend just a little bit of time in this. But in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, you know it. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the ongoing work of salvation is proved by ending conformity to the world and now being conformed to the image of Christ. Now we come into a new mold, and that's the conformity of Christ. And so as we are conformed to Christ, then the evidence of God's work begins to be manifested. And that's what Paul saw going on in the Philippian Christians. I believe he was convinced of their conversion. He was absolutely sure that since a work began that God would continue that work simply because he knows the character of God. But think what it's like for Paul having witnessed to these people, having brought them to faith in Jesus Christ, and now to be able to witness the work of God actually going on in their lives when he sees the evidence of the change that's happened to him. Now there's tangible evidence of what's going on. 
I know people that have come to church, they've walked the church aisle, and they said, I have received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And at the moment that they come down here, I'm convinced of this because of the, of the confession that they've made, because they've said it with their mouth, because they say, I believe it in my heart. I, I'm convinced at that moment that God will continue a work in them. But I notice sometimes as time goes by that these people sometimes fall away. And sometimes they don't continue in the confession that they said that they've made. Uh, They don't show any evidence. They begin to backslide. And so I begin to wonder, is there real faith there? I mean, were they really believers at all? The conformity to Christ is the answer to the question. I had a friend uh, when I was a teenager and, and very early in my married life that I was sure was a Christian. This is a young man that we invited to, to come to our church camp. And there at church camp, he received the Lord as his Savior, he said. Came to the church and, and uh, became a member of the church, worked in the church, drove a, drove a church bus, um, became a deacon in the church. But then he ended up having an extramarital affair. Broke up his family, broke up another family in the church. He remarried, but that marriage didn't last, and so he got married again. Got into drinking, all different kinds of things, and gambling and so forth. And uh, he really showed no evidence. And so I, I, for 25 years now, he's been in that condition. And so I can't look back at him and confidently say that I really believe that that person had a good work going on in him, that he really had received Christ as the Savior. And that's because the conformity, the evidence, that's, it's not really there. So I can't have any confidence that that good work began. But here, I believe that Paul rejoices because in the Philippians, he sees the work ongoing. The behavior is changed. Conformity of Christ to Christ, that's the result. So the Bible says that that's exactly what we have been predestined for. Once you get saved, you are also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if that doesn't happen, then there's doubt that the person ever was a believer. Let me give you now four characteristics that demonstrate the behavior of God's good work. How is God's work demonstrated in us? Well, number one, it's demonstrated by sacrifice. We find this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We just read, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now notice that Paul says there, your bodies are the sacrifice. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean that that he wants us to become suicide bombers. And he doesn't mean that we ought to be like pagan worshipers who went and offered their children on altars to their pagan gods. He's not speaking of that. He's talking about a sacrifice where we alive, where our bodies belong to Jesus Christ. When a person offers a sacrifice, he gives up all claims to the sacrifice. He gives that sacrifice to his deity, and that becomes the possession of the deity. And what Paul says here is that when you you give yourself as a sacrifice to Christ, then the claims that you have on your body are gone. It all belongs to him, and whatever he decides to do with you, that's perfectly all right, because it now belongs to him. But there's something we need to understand about what Paul says in Romans 12. This does not mean that there is a repeated sacrifice. We often hear about daily sacrificing. 
We talk about sacrificing on Tuesday and on Wednesday, on Thursday and Friday and so on. So we make a daily sacrifice. That's not what Paul talks about in this verse. Now, there, there may be such a thing as a daily sacrifice, but what it actually means in this verse is a one-time sacrifice. If you sacrifice your body and you truly do it, how many times can you make that sacrifice? Well, you've surrendered the body, so it belongs to the Lord. You can't take the sacrifice back on Tuesday and say, well, I'll make a sacrifice again on Friday. This means a one-time sacrifice. When you give yourself to God, you belong to him. So you can't say, well, tomorrow is my day. It's not God's day. So I'll do what I want to do tomorrow. And then when I decide that I'm going to pick it back up again and I'm going to start living like a Christian needs to live, then I'll renew the sacrifice that I've made. That's not what Paul's saying here. You can't make a commitment today and then give up that commitment tomorrow and start it again at another time because that is not evidence of a good work. Now, can you imagine if Paul sees that in the Philippian people? How's he ever going to think, well, there's a good work started here and it's ongoing when this work runs hot and cold all the time? You have to be careful about Christian testimony because nobody has evidence of the good work unless there is a consistency there. You've sacrificed and you can't vacillate between hot and cold. Your body belongs to him. You say to the Lord, I'm yours. God, I'm yours. Take my life and let it be always only all for thee. That's what he means by sacrifice. So continually, this is a sacrifice. You don't renew it. It's going on all the time. Now, secondly, what Paul means in Romans 1 and 2 is is surrender. God's work is demonstrated by surrender. Many churches at invitation time... You'll see people come down the aisles and they'll come and talk to the pastor and they'll say, I want to rededicate my life. I don't think there's anything wrong with rededicating your life. I think it's a good thing to do if you've wandered off course. If uh, you haven't evidenced Christ in your life and you realize that, it might be a good thing for you to do. Just come down and say and tell everybody, you know, I, I want to live for Jesus again. I mean, I want to do what's right, so I'm rededicating my life. But I remember back in our church in Kentucky, we had what were called the constant rededicators. These are the ones, you know, that have beaten a path down the aisle from their seat to the front of the church. I mean, it seems like they're always having to rededicate their lives. So we have a visiting preacher who comes and he gives his invitation at the end of the sermon and these people start streaming down the aisles. Man, he's thinking, I did a good job in this sermon tonight. We didn't have the heart to tell him those are the usual suspects. I mean, these are the same ones all the time. Surrender goes with sacrifice. And that is when you commit to Christ, it's not something that you have to renew on a daily basis. The commitment ought to be so strong that it sticks, that you stay there and you carry through with commitment. Then another thing that people are confused about is who do I surrender to? Because many people are busy surrendering to themselves. They're not surrendering to God. You know, when you come to church and... You say, well, it's time to go home. And you say, well, I didn't get much out of the service today. Didn't get much out of that sermon that the preacher preached today. Didn't get very much out of the music today. Well, it's obviously you've surrendered to the wrong person. You've surrendered to yourself. Be a whole lot better for you to come to church or leave the church and say, not how much did I get in the service today, but how much did I give in the service today? That, you know, who you surrender to is going to change your attitude a little bit about what happens when you come to church. 
You need to ask yourself a question. How much have I actively participated in the work that the church does? Did I come to church in order to get something, or did I come to church to give something? And the difference in that is whether you're surrendered to God or surrendered to yourself. The third thing that we see here in Romans 1 and 2 is separation. I think Paul teaches separation in this, and that's evidence of a good work that goes on in us. You see, when you live by the world standards, there's no way that anyone can identify you as one of God's people. I was talking to uh, Lucy Kuhn's dad a few weeks ago, and uh, he was telling me about a conversation that he had with someone, and this person asked him if he was a Christian. And he said, well, yes, why do you ask? And this person said, because you're wearing your Christianity. Now, I thought that was a great testimony. He said, you're wearing your Christianity. Now, here's the thing about it. Do you have a testimony? Is there something different about your life that people are able to tell you've been changed by something, that there's something, something's happened to you? You're not like everybody else. I know everybody here, you know that I'm not a preacher, that every week I stand up and I talk to you about how people dress. You know, I'm not going to have a rule book that I'm going to produce for everybody to go by and try to manufacture some holiness for you. Many people think that holiness is when you uh, cut your hair, men, so that it's off your collar and cut it so it's off your ears, and that'll make you holy. And you ladies, uh, holiness for you is when you wear a dress that comes down to the middle of your knees, and if it goes a little further to the bottom of your knee, you're a little bit more holy. And if it goes to the floor, you are spectacularly holy, and that's what they think holiness is. They think, ladies, that holiness is if you don't wear slacks. And uh, fathers, if you throw the TV out in the backyard, then you must be a holy person. That's not what holiness is about. Holiness is to be separated apart to God. Holiness is not, not achieved by rule books. So what I try to preach to you is that I want you to do things that are right simply for the fact that you have a response in your heart to what God has done for you that you have a response of holiness and you show conformity to Christ. But you know something that I've noticed? And I'm probably talking to the wrong crowd tonight, but some people just don't get that. They just don't get it because the holiness is evidently not there. Instead, they're still conforming to the world and they still have that dress that looks like the world dresses. They still have a lifestyle that goes right along with what the rest of the world is doing. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions sometime. What has happened? Is there something going on in my life? I mean, why hasn't it produced a change in me? And it might be just some of your stubbornness. So you need to look at yourself. Am I modest? Do I dress modestly as I should? Do I reflect that I'm a person who serves Christ? Or do I look just like everybody else? Do I show a desire that I want to fit in with the world rather than to fit in with the way that God wants me to live? You see... Separation is when your thinking is transformed. That's what true separation is. The thinking gets transformed. Paul says here, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when your mind gets renewed, your outlook is different. And when your outlook gets different, it shows up in your look outwardly. Whatever's in your heart is going to change you on the outside. And, and, and if it's not changing you then I really do think that people got to step back and think, what's going on in my life? Because the evidence is not there. 
Now, you know that I'm never going to tell you you're going to get saved by doing any kind of work, saved by dressing any way or getting holy by dressing any way, but I can sure tell you this. The evidence of whether you actually got something is going to show up in the way that you live, you act, the things you do, the way you talk, the people you associate with. That's how you see that the good work is going on. Now, here in Philippi, Paul saw the good work because I believe that these are people that were not mixed up with everything that was going on in Philippi. Now, in contrast to that, we've been studying 1 Corinthians, and there it was much harder to tell, are these people really true believers or not? And the reason why? Because what are they doing? They're incorporating the world into the church. And so you remember Paul had to sarcastically say, there have to be divisions among you because otherwise we wouldn't be able to tell who's who here. Uh, the the, the, the uh, normative thing, the thing that you want in a church, you want no divisions. But if a division has to become necessary to tell who's who, then at that point, maybe it's a good thing to have a division. And that's why Paul sarcastically made that statement. So is that the way it is with you? Could anybody tell that you're a Christian by your separation? See, the behavior of the work of perseverance is it shows up in conformity to Christ. The fourth thing that I think that we can see from Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, about conformity, and that is our service. You can tell a good work is going on because people are busy serving God. Romans 12 says that when we're holy, we'll sacrifice, when we, we'll separate. And he says when you do this, interestingly enough, it's reasonable service. This is not like God saying, well, now you got saved. It's time to put the extra push on. We're going to put the extra push on, I want you to get into service. And that's as if serving God is something above and beyond what a Christian ought to do. Serving, the scripture says, is just reasonable. Sacrificing for the Lord is reasonable. Surrendering your life to Christ is reasonable. I mean, that's not like you've suddenly jumped up to some otherworldly kind of Christianity. These things are reasonable. You remember what Jesus said? He said, when you've done everything that you've been told to do, what have you got? Simply your duty. You've done what you were supposed to do. So we're not talking about something way up here in Christianity that's the otherworldly type of Christianity because you serve. That's what God expects normal Christianity to be all about. But some people think that's a step that's not required. Serving is for other people to do. And so they they say, Pastor, serving... What do you mean by serving? You mean you expect me to actually do something? What do you mean by serving? Well, Paul says just working, sacrificing, separating, living for Christ. He says it's all just reasonable. What do you do when God has done so much for you? You serve him. Now, do you know there are some preachers that I was thinking about this. They've, uh, they've decided to stop preaching on some things. They stopped preaching about church attendance, for instance. Some, some pastors have just given up on the idea of church attendance because people are just going to do what they want to do. So let's stop preaching about it. So instead, let's accommodate the people that don't want to come to church when, when service times are. So now today they have the Saturday night service. You come on Saturday night because you've got a busy weekend, or you come on a Friday night because you've got so many things to do, and that means you don't have to come on Sunday because you've got the church over with. And, that, and that's the desire that many people have. Let's just get the thing over with, and then we'll say that we've been to church or whatever. But where did anybody ever get the authority to change the Lord's Day from Sunday to Saturday or Friday? 
I say if you go to church on Friday and Saturday, make sure you get there on Sunday too because that's the Lord's Day. The spe- well, all of them are the Lord's Days, but that's the special designated day that God has given us to worship Him. So we don't have any authority to change that. But somehow people got it mixed up because it's so unreasonable to serve God anymore. And that's why people don't get involved in church. And that's why you have 20% of the people that do all the work and give 80% of the money. That, that's a natural statistic all across churches. 20% of the people do the work and they give 80% of the money to the church. Why? Because people got mixed up about serving. Somehow it all became unreasonable. Well, Paul knew that a good work was going on because the church at Philippi had some service happening there. Their behavior was to serve because they had been conformed to Christ. And what was Christ? He was a servant, wasn't he? Mark chapter 10. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So if you've been conformed to Christ or you want to show you're conformed, then throw a servant's towel over your shoulder. Start serving. Sacrifice, surrender, separation, service. That's all a demonstration of what in your life? Does anybody know? It's a demonstration of another doctrine. Sanctification. Sanctification. Now, sanctification is a, something that happens one time in your life when you get saved. That's one type of sanctification. But there's another type of sanctification that we call progressive sanctification. That happens every single day of your life as you're being conformed to Christ. Your daily sanctification is the ongoing work. That's God working through the doctrine of perseverance to get you to your sanctification. Now, there's another final piece that we need to deal with this about the behavior of the work, and that is the completion of salvation. This is going to put us back into some old territory, something that I've uh, uh, talked to you about two or three times in the last year. It's the ongoing nature of salvation. Salvation is ongoing. Your salvation is not yet complete. Now hear me out on this because you ought to recognize it when I start to say it. When you place your faith in Christ, you are justified from all of your sins. That's the past tense of salvation. You have been justified from your sins. That means that you stand in a right relationship to God. All the illegal impediments have been moved out of the way so that you now uh, are sure to go to heaven. All of the, the legal stuff is taken care of. There's no sin for which you can ever be condemned. And the very moment that you put your faith in Christ, you are as sure for heaven right then as if you've been there a thousand years already. That's in the past tense. That's what happened to you. The present tense of salvation is your sanctification. Now, that's what we've been talking about now, and I'm talking about the progressive side of it. The, the present tense of salvation is sanctification. That's what we talked about. We talk about a sacrifice and surrender and separation and service. That's your progressive sanctification, present sanctification and your present salvation. God's working in you in the, pre- in the, working in you in the present. But then you have one more thing, and that is your future salvation. Future salvation is yet to be fulfilled. And what is that? That's our glorification. Our text in Philippians 1 verse 6 says that God will perform this work unto the day of Jesus Christ. What that means is that is the day that Jesus reveals himself in glory. That's the day when all of God's people 
get to see Jesus Christ in that second coming. And he comes in his glorified body. John says in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Final salvation is right there in that verse. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. That's our glorification. We're going to receive a body that is exactly like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to that scope of salvation one more, one more time in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, then he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, the last part there, them he also glorified. Glorification is the completion of our salvation. That's when this body, the old sinful body, is changed to be like the body of Jesus. And so then we have final, full salvation because then we're redeemed in body, soul, and spirit. So this is a wonderful thing that Paul says to the Philippians. He says, I am confident God has begun a work in you. I can see the work and God will keep on with that work until it reaches God's full intention. Now let me give you your last statement here if you're listening sheet tonight. The full weight of God's glory Majesty, might, and dominion hinges on his ability to finish what he starts. Now get all of that down. The full weight of God's glory, majesty, might, and dominion hinges on his ability to finish what he starts. If God's not able to do that, you have no assurance of salvation. All the work or all the assurance that you have depends on him finishing it. So that's, that, this, this verse is so important for peace of mind. It's important for your contentment as a Christian that God's going to finish what he starts. You don't start salvation yourself. God does it. God continues it. So if God starts it in eternity past, he calls you out in the present, he sanctifies you in the present, and then he, he promises a final outcome of glorification, you know it's going to happen because God said it would. In Galatians, Paul said, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And the answer to that question is, I don't understand why anybody could be mixed up on what perseverance is, because the answer to that question is our perseverance. We did not begin in the Spirit and complete our salvation in the flesh. We began in the Spirit, and we're going to stay in the Spirit, and we're going to finish in the Spirit. The Spirit's always going to be there. God is going to complete what he, what he started. So that's what perseverance is. And that's why you know now perseverance is a Bible doctrine. Some people say no, but God says yes. Richard Sibbs again said, God knoweth we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requireth no more than he giveth, and giveth what he requireth, and accepteth what he giveth. If you had time to write it down, just write it and read it over and over and over again because that's exactly the Bible doctrine of perseverance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for what you've revealed in your word. The key to opening up the book of Philippians and helping us to understand why Paul wrote like he did, why he was so content even while they're in a prison cell was because he knew that you were going to finish the work. 
Lord, we thank you for that. And thank you that you're, you have an ongoing work in our lives. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's